You're listening to the Screeners Podcast Network. First of all, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ethan Siegel to the podcast. Welcome. Hi there. It's my pleasure to be here, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Anytime. We are excited. We've actually talked about you a couple times on the podcast, and uh, you have been maybe a, a little center of debate with, uh, with us, so we will, uh, we'll get to some of that in just a little bit. But before we get to all that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and, and uh, why you do what you do? Uh, sure. My name's Ethan Siegel. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist. I got my PhD uh, in theoretical cosmology, which is the study of dark matter, dark energy, the Big Bang, and the origin and fate of the universe, um, and everything mm. in between. And uh, yeah, I've been a professor for a number of years, and I stopped doing that officially in 2015, okay. uh, because in 2008, I also started doing science communication to the public, where I was uh, writing. I write the award-winning science blog, Starts With a Bang, which is now hosted yes. on Forbes. And uh, yeah, uh, most recently, I have a new book out called Treknology. This is an official Star Trek book, uh, The Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive. And uh, I think it's a fantastic read. I'm real excited about it. It just debuted as we're recording this uh, four days ago um, was the official release. So you're one of the very first people I get to talk to about that. And as you may know, I've been reviewing each episode of Star Trek Discovery for Forbes as well. So I've, I'm caught up and I have some opinions and I'm sure you do too. Oh, I'm sure we do. Yeah. And I, and I definitely know that our listeners do. Um, let's, let's, uh, we'll, absolutely get into that and in fact i think that we'll have a, a nice little uh heated discussion although you and i i think are going to agree a lot more um than than maybe our our, our co-host my co-host chris does um well just let's get into it let's get some some of the um just your thoughts on sci-fi in general you know let's let's get a barometer for how you hold where you hold star trek where you hold other sci-fi just what are your what are your thoughts on sci-fi overall and hard versus soft all that stuff well, so there's a whole big range, right? And yep. so I'm someone that I'm not afraid to admit, I like Star Trek, I like Star Wars, I like Battlestar Galactica. You had the opportunity to do a spit take there with yep. some, some You can do all three of beverages going time. into your mouth and you're like, no, 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 that's fine. Like I saw you nodding your head. Yep. I don't know if this podcast is going to be audio only or video too, but but you, you agreed with that. So yes, I do. the way I'm okay with this is I say, look, we have the laws of physics as we know them, and as we may imagine, we'll discover more. And that's and that for me is like if you're sticking to that, and that's all that's going on in your universe, that's that's reasonably hard sci-fi. Now, if you're also saying like, okay, we're gonna do like, we're gonna have the force in the universe, we're gonna have like you know robo sentient cylons with no real explanation that get a respawn every time they die like <laughs> yep. i'm like okay like you can do that all i need to know is how is your universe different than my universe and if you say okay i have these different rules in my universe here's what they are um 
but everything was going to be consistent within those rules. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with Game of Thrones. I'm fine with uh, I'm fine with that level of fantasy. Just like yeah, okay. So you have dragons and you have red comets and you have magic and you bring people back from the dead and you have the old gods and you have the Lord of Light and you have the faceless God of Death, which is my favorite. Yep. And then you say okay, like that's it. These are the rules and everything on top of that is you also have like science and physics and all of this. I think that's great. So as long as you know the rules, I'm fine with it. Star Trek, I got into because the other way from the way most people do it, most of the people I talk to who are scientists who are into Star Trek, Star Trek was kind of like the gateway for them. Like yep. Star Trek was like, oh, I was into Star Trek and this was wonderful and it got me excited about becoming a, a, a medical professional or a biological researcher or a physicist or an astrophysicist. And that's great. But for me, it was the other way around. I'd always been interested in science and yep. learning about the way the natural world works. And it was actually, uh, so Star Trek The Next Generation came out in 87. Yep. I was nine years old at the time. And a few years later, when I was a teenager, was when I really got into Next Generation. I sort of discovered it. I was like, wow, like, with all that I love about science, this is like just such a brilliant utopian vision of the future where we've used science and technology and everything we've learned and developed to better all of humanity. And we're exploring it and we're sharing in these riches, these intellectual riches, these technological riches, and and we've used it to eliminate some of these catastrophic social problems. There's no poverty. Yep. There's no... Um, there's very little disease. There's like things have progressed so wonderfully that it's a virtual utopia. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I think that's just yeah. wonderful. And so that was that was sort of where I came from and what my background on on Star Trek was. And I've seen I won't say I've seen every episode of every series, sure. but I've seen like I have my favorites like yeah. everyone. Does. Like I would say Next Generation is my favorite. I nice. really like Deep Space Nine. Uh, Voyager had its moments, but it also had its weak points. I feel that <laughs> series and Enterprise. Yep. And Discovery is a whole new beast. Um, yeah. Discovery is really... Uh, it's a new type of Star Trek for me. Um, you have to realize the gap between Enterprise and Discovery is the biggest gap between Star Trek series yep. in terms of real life duration on Earth than anything since the original series to the next generation. Yep, absolutely, oh, 100%. And so as you're looking at it, how are you, because I'm, I'm seeing it from a, a standpoint that, that a lot of people are talking about on Twitter of, of well, it's, there's uniform changes or there's look changes there's cosmetic changes are you seeing more substantial deeper changes maybe even to the spirit and or the the science fiction of star trek well i i think there is you know i think um star trek is not only a product of like okay we're envisioning humanity as it would be in the future it's also a product of its time like star trek in the 1960s you know it was futuristic for the 60s you know but you look at like a typical like you look at uhura's earpiece when she Mm -hmm. was the comms officer and you look at something like okay like that was her earpiece why is that 
bigger and bulkier and more cumbersome than like a Bluetooth device from right. 10 years ago. And it's because there's a limit to what Star Trek can predict. So yeah. the next generation looked more futuristic than the original series did. But you look at a next generation phaser now and you're like, oh yeah, yeah that's what I use to like, you know, trim my nose hairs. Like, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. not, <laughs> that, that's not something you anticipate is like, you know, very, uh, it doesn't look futuristic today. Yeah. Um, and when you got into Deep Space Nine and Voyager, that was a little further down the timeline. But there were a lot of things in Enterprise yeah. that looked more futuristic than things in the next generation. And if you come to it in Discovery, yeah, there are things that look more futuristic now. Like the original series didn't have the holograms right. that they have. but. But I don't worry about that as much. I look at that as like, this is more product of modern day times. This is taking modern day times. This is trying to work within the framework of the Star Trek yeah. universe. And it's just looking at that, you know, oh yeah, like this is, this is set in the future. Yeah. That's what the future looks like from now looking ahead. So I don't mind the cosmetic changes. I don't mind the uniform changes. I don't mind the ship design changes. Um, the thing that that I struggle with the most probably is the ethics changes. When I look at this and I'm like, hey, what's what's the Federation all about? What's what are these Starfleet ideals? How consistently do these characters act? When I see when I see some inconsistencies there or things that don't jibe, that that rubs me the wrong way sometimes. But but I've decided, you know. The two-hour premiere, the the first two-episode premiere of Discovery, right? Um, I look at that as that's just kind of a a standalone thing. Like that's basically yeah. like that's a pre-prequel. Like if this it's is a, a prologue series, then this yeah. is just like, hey, there are just some basic things about the world that we want to set up, and so okay, fine, you do that, and then I say okay. Episode three is about introducing people to Discovery. Episode four is introducing some essential plot elements. And after yeah. episode four, I was really inclined to say, like, you know, boy, I really hope things get better from here. Because I'm not <laughs> liking the way this is going. But I thought in the last episode, in the fifth episode, um, things really did get better. Yeah. I thought that that was a much better episode. I We started to see the inklings of character growth. Sure. Instead of placing characters in ethically questionable situations, watching them act questionably and have no commentary on it, um, they bring up these issues front yes. and center and address them all the way through in the fifth episode. And when it comes to... Um, when it comes to the science, um, I think by time you get to the fifth episode, the fifth episode says, okay, like, so we've invented some scientifically questionable things. Like yeah. we've invented a mycelium network that permeates the whole galaxy. And you're like, really? It took billions of years for fungi to <laughs> on earth from these like archaeobacteria and these prokaryotic organisms. And now you're saying this stuff that we developed here on earth over billions of years. Oh yeah, this is everywhere. Network throughout the galaxy. And you've got a tardigrade. Yep. That 
you call it a tardigrade. It behaves nothing like a tardigrade. All you did was you made a humanoid mammal-like monster. Yeah. Nipple clips up to, and it takes <laughs> throughout the galaxy. <laughs> yeah. And now you're saying like, oh yeah, by the way, this thing is totally a tardigrade. Well, I really doubt it. Look, there were some questionable science moments where right. you're like, oh wow, like tardigrades and human beings share 50% of your DNA. Yeah, so do human beings and everything. Right. Human beings and bananas share 50% <laughs> of their DNA, but you're not mating a tardigrade with a banana to power your spore drive. Right. Um, so the whole thing that I really enjoyed about the earlier Star Trek series is they deliberately left things vague. Yes. They deliberately, they would say like, oh, this is a warp drive technology and it's powered by uh, dilithium crystals. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the transporter works because we have Heisenberg compensators. And yep. You know, like they would just make up words, you know, like, oh, like we don't have that. Well, let's make verteron particles. What's a yeah. verteron? Well, it's a new particle that we made up to make this other thing work. Star Trek Discovery is going a different route. They're, they're basically trying to use like cutting edge science buzzwords that you probably read off yeah. like the IFLS Facebook page and saying like, well, that's how we're going to bring science into the series. And okay like that's a different way to do it and it's maybe not my favorite way to do it but if that's just the setup for this series then that just says okay like this is a part of your world i need to sp suspend that part of my disbelief um and it's really you know in concept it's not all that different from saying like okay with deep space nine i had to say oh yeah of all the ways space can be curved yeah. in the whole universe there's a wormhole there's one wormhole that yeah that's stable and it's really going to connect to a, just a different point in the same galaxy that's how it's going to work and, and and they have the borg over there and they have the same but but fine like if you can suspend your disbelief for that then you can suspend your disbelief for the mycelium network and the spore yeah. drive so that's i'm just fine with that um although it took me a few episodes to maybe get used to that how do you feel about it? Because I know you're a bit of a hard sci-fi person. I uh, it took me it took me a little while too, and and there were things I I actually think I'm kind of coming to to where you are. I I I like. I guess I'm a I'm a hard sci-fi person that where the hard where the sci-fi is consistent, or the science is consistent. You know, I definitely am not a science guy myself, so I can't usually say I'm not I'm not gonna just be able to you know name you know, the, the deep meaningful things that, that actually, you know, make it wrong. But if, but if it's consistent in my world, I am a literature guy. So if it's consistent in, in the world, like you're saying, as it's set up, then, then I'm down, then I'm fine. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sit and nitpick. Well, you know, a warp bubble doesn't really, you know, shouldn't be able to work the way that a warp bubble, like the way that people will, will talk through it. But if as long as, or, or the fact that we have artificial gravity because they say we do, you know, because something somewhere there's some magnet that drags them down i like i don't know what what it is some some great thing uh drags them down um but i'm the big deal is like you're saying the ethics the the characters or the characters working the way that they should and are we talking about sci-fi saying deeper bigger things and if we have to sift through some some techno babble um then i'm okay in general okay. So that's, uh, that's good to know how you feel about it. That's, yeah. that, I think that's eminently reasonable, right? Yeah. You're basically saying like, here's what I need to be okay with this setup. Yeah. And 
that's but that's I, that's just like as long as you have that set up then i can enjoy the show right and I, and i think it's it's more like i need to know what i'm watching and this is why maybe it took me a few episodes too if i'm if i'm reading um what did i, I just left my head um uh, the book that i just read uh Okay, well, if I'm if I'm reading um, some some Alistair Reynolds, or if I'm reading some some other guys, there's a better one that I just thought of, uh, and it's Kim Stanley, Kim Stanley Robinson, his newer one, um, Aurora. I think it's Aurora. Um, if if I know that I'm reading a, a hard sci-fi and I'm I'm looking for the consistency throughout it, then or or maybe some Morrison Scott card here or there, I, I know what I'm reading. I know what what they're trying to give me. And they're not trying to pass it off as something else. Um, like I don't usually, I'm not watching original series, like you said, and looking for, you know, are they making? Do I know exactly how this ship holds together and how it works? And and they're going warp fifteen in in the original series, but we know later on you can't go beyond really warp nine something. Um, then that's then that's fine. Those inconsistencies are okay with me as long as I know what I'm getting. Um, and so to me, Star Trek has always been sort of soft sci-fi. It's been social commentary. It's been telling us about humanity and what humanity is and that seems to be more important but that's where discovery has gotten shaky for me they seem to be trying to cross boundaries and it's confusing well i and that's that's a fair that's that i think is a fair criticism you know but but i think you have to kind of divorce in your head the star trek you want it to be right from the star trek it actually is sure um you know just because it's a different kind of star trek than what you had expected yeah. doesn't mean it's not still star trek right and, sure. yeah. and and it's not just star trek because you know it's it's grappling with like you know oh like you have the federation insignia and there are klingons and you're traveling throughout right. the stars like no it's it's star trek because on the one hand there is this uh this very rigid military structure and yep. you have these flawed characters that that have to weigh the ethics of their decision and who they impact and how they impact them yep. and you know so you you know to to look at the last episode you you'll ask questions like hmm did Lorca make the right decision or a smart decision by rescuing Ash Tyler but not saving Mud right oh man um and <laughs> And most of the commentary I read is very critical of him yeah. for not saving mud. But when I look at that, I say, you know, I'm, I'm much more critical of him for letting the Klingon captain of the adversary ship survive. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a much worse move than not saving mud. Yeah. Mud he, is, he should mud have. Is very much a, an opportunist yep. um, and a survivor but mud did not demonstrate, like, you know, it's sort of the thing like, oh, like you, you, not everyone is going to be as good as Captain Picard. Like that's, that's, no. that's my no. favorite captain. Yep. And, you know, I, like, like not to, not to put too fine a point of it. Like, I think Captain Picard is like the ultimate Star Trek dad, where <laughs> he's pretty much just like, if you want a beacon of good conscience and yeah. hope, and and someone who's just totally invested in the welfare of their ship and their crew yep. that's captain picard where where he wants to do the smart thing he wants to do the right thing and yep. he's going to do it even at great personal cost yeah um, and and he doesn't get everything right he he knows that uh Lorca is a different beast than that you know when you sort of 
start thinking about all the times that Section 31 has come up in Star Trek. Yeah. You see the NCC 1031, and you have Black Alert. Yeah. And you start having all this secret technology and the special, like, uh, there's obviously some sort of connection here. Or if there isn't some sort of connection, then this is a huge red herring yeah. that the writers are throwing our way. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think I think we're looking at the seamy underbelly of the Federation in perhaps their most tumultuous times. Um, we're, we're in a war, you know, and, and we saw war with, with Deep Space Nine, too, and we saw hard choices being made there. Um, and they blew it in a whole yes. bunch of cases. Do you remember in Deep Space Nine, this is one of my favorite episodes, and it rarely gets talked about in the fav- favorite episode things. They did a two-part episode where there was this conspiracy led by Admiral Layton. Oh, yes. Changelings on Earth. Homefront and, and Paradise Lost, I think. Yes, yep. you nailed it. That's yep. exactly right. Yeah, good job. <laughs> so my favorite moment of that is Captain Sisko comes down to Earth and he meets his father. Yes. And he oh. has to go and collect blood samples yes. from everyone on Earth to prove that everyone's not a changeling. Yep. And it's Sisko's dad who has the principal's conversation with him, yep. who has the conversation that this is not what we're about. These are not the principles on which Starfleet was built. This is not okay to give up people's freedoms. Yep. This is not okay to say like, oh, in the name of security, you lose your liberty. And yeah. it's amazing that this happened years before 9-11. I actually. was just going to say, yes, absolutely. Like this was this was very prescient and, and a, a warning we did not heed at no. all. Um, but Cisco is conflicted about it. And in the end, he has his guards, sees his dad, hold him down. He takes the blood anyway, and it accomplishes nothing. No. And But he does. He violates his own principles, and he just has to live with it. Yeah. And so, no, you, you don't always have the characters acting ethically. But right. I like to think in Deep Space Nine, they learn a lesson from it. Yes. And, and I got to tell you, like, the biggest happy surprise moment for me in this most recent episode of Discovery, um, I was watching this with, with my wife and a friend of mine, and we're watching the episode, and um, Saru yeah. tells Burnham to confine herself to quarters. And I see that, and I just say to, like, both of them next to me, I'm like, how much do you want to bet that she does not confine herself to her quarters? But she does. She does. For the first time, she doesn't break and enter. She doesn't go to the place she's not supposed to be. She doesn't mutiny. She doesn't do whatever the hell she thinks is the right thing to do. Despite what the chain of command is, she actually like defers to her superior officer. Yeah. And this is the first time we've seen that from her. And that was enough for me to say, well, look at that. You have some personal growth for the first time. You're actually not a total piece of, uh, you're not a disobedient person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's and even more importantly that it's with Saru, the person who you know most reminds her of her betrayal at all times. You know, is okay. I will. I will do this thing, and and I and I love it. And I think this is where I'm. I'm at, especially if we're getting with ethics. You know, we're 
we should be seeing, I think, even a continuum or a, or a spectrum, starting with enterprise, where they are willy-nilly, you know, interfering with cultures and, and, and you know, jumping into conflicts that they don't have any business in. We saw earlier, you know, the original series, Kirk is very similarly, despite the fact that they talk about the Prime Directive, they are pretty willing to, to jump into any problem and to, um, to, to interfere all day long. And then we get Picard and, and Cisco and that whole era of, of utopia, even though it's not perfect. I mean, we're seeing not only a time where they're at war in a, in a more gritty way than we saw maybe in, in the Dominion War, but we're also seeing pre, pre-Kirk even. You know, so Starfleet is not the way that we see it later on. No, and it certainly seems like there are a whole bunch of things that they haven't gotten figured out yet in yeah. Starfleet. And so we're seeing that too. We're seeing the rough edges of Starfleet. Yeah. Um, but you have to remember that even in even in the Cisco world, even in the Picard world, uh, there were these conflicts where yeah. where different members of the crew wanted to do different things, where they yeah. weighed in differently. Like, um, I think it was in the uh, Redemption arc in Next Generation, yeah. um, where you had like a Klingon ship decloaking yeah. and getting attacked, and and Riker is like we have to go to red alert and do this and this. And Picard is like, you know, shields up. Yep. Move us around. Yeah. Take us, take us over here. Yep. And Riker's like, what are you doing? And yep. you know, Picard just ignores him. And, um, and that's the right move. But yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me when I saw that as a young person, you know, maybe 13 years old when sure. I saw that, um, I was outraged. I was like, why aren't they listening to Riker? Why don't you jump in? You help your allies. You come right. to their defense. That's what you do. And, and, and as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know, there are bigger concerns than this. Like if you take that action, you're dragging the entire Federation into yep. a civil war of another culture. Yeah. And that is, that is a much bigger deal. Like that's, that's sort of like, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, oh, like that might be an allegory for like the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you do. You have to. You have to think of the larger picture. You have to think of the not immediate consequences, but the longer term consequences of your actions. And and that's something that I don't think uh, the crew of Discovery has achieved. But no. that might not be their main focus at this point. Well, and it might even be where they're, where they're headed. You know, that's Michael Burnham, even, even what you just described, Michael Burnham, essentially, you know, she accidentally triggers a war or at least a conflict by, by accidentally killing the, the torchbearer, you know, in self-defense. And then um, her plan, you know, her, she is preoccupied with very Vulcan, you know, here and now, um, you know, I am, I am here to, to protect you, the captain. I am, I want to get the, the Shinzo out of this, um, this immediate conflict and not considering the, the further conflict she may be kicking off at, at the beginning in the, in the first two episodes, there's very much um, she's very impulsive. She seems to be weighing her decisions, but she's not weighing much like, like Giorgio would be the female Picard almost, you know, she's very perceptive. She's very um, understanding. And yet Burnham is, is saying, no, I, I would rather pull a gun on you and and commit mutiny then see you die but there are worse things than seeing just her her captain die i think is what we're kind of seeing here 
Yeah, and and look, I I think in the first couple of episodes, I I really had a hard time suspending my disbelief for how is someone that we're told is this logical creature act so impulsively all the time because we're shown the opposite of what we're being told. Oh man, Um, absolutely. And that that, again. Yeah, and and that part is that part is frustrating to me, but that's why I sort of. I, I'm trying not to look at those episodes, those first two episodes as like, I'm trying not to hang on to them too sure. much. You know, if I look back at the encounter at Farpoint episodes, I'm like, ah, you know, this was not the finest moment of Star Trek either. No. no. Um, so, so give it a chance to develop and, and, and try and base it on that. I, I think there were some nice uh, callbacks. I really enjoyed yeah. The fact that they made Lorca very photosensitive, yeah. and they had the bright lights that they were shining on him to torture him. Yes, it reminded me very much of the famous uh, Picard episode where he's captured by the Cardassians. Yes. And I, 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 when when they had the scene with Lorca, I said, "There's only three lights." Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I wanted him to say the thing too, and and or even down to like. You know, we've learned something from this enemy, the Cardassians. You know this torture technique, and just. There, there are three lights or there are four lights. I, I would have been, oh, it would have been killer. That would have been <laughs> way too detailed a callback, but that's, I, I would have loved it. Uh, what else is standing out to you, good and bad, uh, strong or, or weak about the discovery so far? Um, one of the things that was really disappointing was Commander Landry. You oh. know, there are, there are so few um prominent women aboard yep. the discovery yep um there's three there's burnham there's tilly and there's landry yep and you assume if you're going to be chief of security aboard a major vessel like discovery that you're not going to just kill yourself in the most idiotic way yep. that you're not going to be like well we already know phasers don't work on this so lower the shields and I'll attack it with my phaser right what I know. Well, and we I have love... to weaponize it. The captain said, well, yeah. the captain said a lot of things. He didn't tell you to go commit suicide by tardigrade. Um, Blindly just shooting around after, after opening a, a force field. It's, it's, it was a, a killer. Um, it is a terrible death. I, she had such a good potential. I saw a long, I actually saw a long future with her and Burnham. I saw some good conflict, you know, in the future. And then, cut off in such a needless pointless way and and the worst part is because of the action she took and the way she died you feel no sympathy you feel no sympathy for her and and nobody seems to care like the fact that your chief of security just died nobody mourns her loss nobody gives her a second thought five minutes after she's dead no one mentions her ever again nope and they don't Um, even use her as a as a motivation like he because immediately he's in the same room she's just died and i think that's when he pipes through the um the communication from the the planet it's not he doesn't he doesn't talk to the crew that hey the security chief died let's not let her death be in vain it's just passed over yeah um speaking of that when the federation outpost was being attacked yeah that whole setup was just baffling to me of yeah. okay 
This is where you get 40% of your dilithium from for the whole Federation. And it is nothing protecting it. unguarded. Ugh. There's no infrastructure there. Nope. And then when you get discovery there, just in the nick of time, and you blow up those Klingon birds of prey, what do you do? You don't rescue anyone. You yep. rescue no one. You guard no one. So you just abandon them again. Right. And right. so... It, it, where you know that the nearest Federation ship is at least over 80 light years away and yep. no one else has the spore drive. Yeah. So, I mean, basically you said like, okay, we're going to give you an extra like few hours to live before the next Klingons get there. Right. Well, and that's even, you know, on that whole spectrum of, of utopia to chaos, you know, uh, Kirk at least still, they did how many relief missions, let alone the next generation relief mission upon relief mission. These guys jump in, blow something up, jump out. And that's where, and that's where they're even comparing that to Lorca leaving mud. You know, it's just, we're, we apparently don't care about the Federation citizens is, is what it's, it's seeming like. Um, it does seem like war. that. It also has me very curious as far as uh, it has me very curious as to what the motivation of the Klingons are, because the yeah. Klingons don't appear to be acting in a consistent fashion. Right. Um, like I get that not every Klingon wants to be at war with the Federation. Sure. That that made a lot of sense. That was actually one of the more interesting things that happened to me and that happened that I thought was there watching the two hour premiere yep. is, you know, when the torchbearer dies, Takuvma is like, okay, like, yeah. you're the brother now, this falls to you. And the brother is like, this is, like, yep. I'm not on board with just like, oh, let's all go die for this yeah. dumbass cause you've invented. Yeah. Like, no, like, that's that's not what being Klingon is. That's not what being anything is. Like, I'm not doing this dumb stuff. Yeah. But it bothers me how, like, I get that you're trying to portray the Klingons as this complicated multifaceted culture, but really you're just turning them into a theocracy. They really like you're are. Just turning them into this fundamentalist theocracy. Um, but there are a lot of things I'm curious about for discovery too. I'm curious why the Klingons have this new appearance. I'm curious yep. about albino Klingons. I'm curious about how they clearly, cause you remember when they cloned Kalis. Yep. Yes. The next generation oh, yeah. mm -hmm. that, the cloned Kalis looks like the Klingons. Right. So clearly at some point in the past, Klingons looked like next generation Klingons. Right. At some point in the future, they look like next generation Klingons. But right now they don't. And we don't know why that is. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. Um I'm curious about um what the predator species that hunts Saru's species yeah. is like. Because it's clear that Saru is a minority on his own world. It's yep. a big deal that he's risen to the ranks of first officer. It's also a big deal that they talk about, um, I guess, privilege in a very unexpected way. You don't expect to see Saru talking about how your refusal to advance has prevented me from getting the chance yeah and that's that's an interesting thing i feel like saru is one of the most introspective characters that we yes. get a window into and that's and and i'm finding myself to be to i, I find that very compelling yep um, he, he's far and away one of the most interesting maybe not maybe the most interesting character on discovery he's just so many things are opened up 
by him. Burnham has more things going on, but he and, and his dynamic with her is so, is just so great to see. Yeah. And, and Tilly, I think is just, uh, she's, she's a character, but for me, she's, she's very much like, you know what, what would it look like if we put a super awkward Star Trek super fan in the show and made her Burnham's roommate? Yes. That's exactly what that is. Yes. And, and, and I agree like that, that is what, what that is. So I think she's there to, help you get excited about this show. But right. sometimes it's a little too on the nose for me. It's a little too like, you know, when, when she busted out with the like, that's f***ing awesome. I yeah. was like, yeah. Like, I, I didn't even catch the F-bomb right. when she said it. Like, it was someone else. So, like, someone else pointed it out to me, and they were like, I, I looked so, up, I was like uh, you can say f- on Star Trek now. I was like, oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. I was just like. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, it was, it, it, I was like stunned for a second. I said, what just happened? Did this? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was like um, when they would re- like the Netflix versions of, uh, of breaking bad had it uncensored, you know, and you watch it on, on one side and then you see it on Netflix and you're like, Oh, I didn't know they ever said that there, but Interesting. Yeah, it's fun times. Yeah. I uh, never saw, I never saw that on, on Netflix. So I think it was the Netflix ones. Yeah. It was, okay. it was surprising to me. Um, well, let's, uh, I, I want to actually, get a chance to talk about your book. Cause this is, it seems fantastic. Uh, what, like, how did you even just get started on, on your book, Technology? Well, so you, so for me, um, I got into Star Trek because I was into the science and then they presented this wonderful utopian vision and I immediately became a, fl- a fan. So yeah. during my formative years, you know, when I'm going to high school, going to college, a young adult, that was sort of the re- renaissance of Star Trek where you had, um, you had the next generation, you had, um, you had the, the next generation movies, you yeah. had Deep Space Nine, you had Voyager, um, which uh, I, I might be the only person that uh, a friend of mine, I think in 97, just, it was the episode where Kess um, dies, yep. where she goes like, my gift to you, Captain, yeah. and they find themselves like 10 years closer to home. Yeah. Uh, and he just said like, oh, really? So like, so she can get them part of the way there. That's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah begin part of the journey but not all the way there it turns to me and he goes this show is like Gilligan's starship and I just lost it and I have thought of the show as Gilligan's starship ever since I can see it every episode you think like oh this will be the episode where they're totally gonna get home and oh no like (laughs) Gilligan lost the coconuts I was just gonna get home or they even get the coconut phone, which is like, oh, sort of. Finally, we can get a little bit of a communication back with Star Trek or Starfleet, but uh, not all the way. Yeah, right, right. We can just send one one-way yeah. message for ten seconds. Yep, yep. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So that so that got you into thinking about the the technology that's going I on. I mean, it, it, it really did. But you know, I also read the Physics of Star Trek by Lawrence Krauss when I was in yeah. high school, which really got me thinking about the physics of the technologies in Next Generation. And then, you know, I've been writing about science and communicating it to the world at large since 2008. That's when I started my blog, Starts With a Bang. And so 
you know, and I, I'm also someone who I'm pretty active on the con circuit. I, yeah. I've been the science guest of honor at a number of science fiction conventions and I'm, I'm into a lot of the fantasy. And so nice. I, and I dress up. So I, I, I get excited about a lot of different things. And when I realized like, you know, there's this huge intersection between the world of real science yeah. and the science fiction world. And if I can bridge that gap, What's an incredibly interesting way to do that? It was the last year was the 50th anniversary yep. of the original series of Star Trek. And I realized that this phone that I hold in the palm of my hand is more powerful than the entire computational power of Earth was when Star Trek, the original series, first debuted. Wow. Wow. Like, because there, there were like computers yeah. were ridiculously underpowered and it would take like it would take 10 million of them to equal the power of a smartphone and we didn't yep. have that. So, so you look at this now and you're like, wow, like this, this is just an incredible leap. And even at the next generation, like this year is the 30th anniversary yep. of the premiere of next generation. You looked at like a technology, like the isolinear chip. Yep. And my flash drive is more powerful. Yep, you look it at is. something like the pad yep. that they envisioned, the, the LCAR system yep. mm -hmm. and, and you say, wow, my tablet computer or my smartphone is more powerful than that. Oh yeah. You look at something like the ship's computer mm -hmm. and you say, oh yeah, big super server, central, ultra powerful computer. Guess what? You didn't think we'd have the internet, did you? Yep. Where you wouldn't need to store everything in some supercomputer. You just have a whole database you can tap into. Um, so there have been a huge number of advances where you take a look at these technologies that Star Trek envisioned, and there's real life science behind a whole bunch of them, yep. where now these things that we thought were going to be off in the far future are real. In some cases, we've even surpassed them. Yeah. And so that's what I did is I went and said, you know what? We have 28 different technologies that I could think of, and I can divide them into different categories like... Sure ship technology, weapons and defense, communications, civilian technologies, um, medical and biological advances, etc. And and so I'm like, these are these are great. Let's break them up into all these categories and let's evaluate each one. So yeah. for each one, what I did was I said, let's take a look at how are these used in the Star Trek universe? When Star Trek envisioned them, what did they have to say about the science behind them? Right. Now let's come into our reality. Where are we with the science? Where are we with the technology? What are the ethical concerns about each one of them? And then what is it going to take to bring these to fruition exactly as Star Trek has envisioned? And that's what we do for each one of the technologies. Then on top of that, the publisher I was working with, uh, Quarto is the company mm -hmm. and the imprint is Voyager Press. They secured the license rights from CBS Studios and Paramount Pictures. That is fantastic. All the still shots from all the different series, all the different movies. And then they put together this beautifully designed hardcover, shiny yeah. Star Trek technology book. And, you know, you take a look inside. Yeah. And Every page has just oh. beautiful graphics, screenshots of the characters. It's uh, it's really fantastic. Yeah, you see this lovely picture. Yeah, I was. Of yeah, I James love it. Doing from the episode Relics, drinking Synthahol. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I love I it. I can't. I 
I cannot stand this world with synthetic <laughs> commanders and synthetic scotch. Yes. Oh, it's great. Uh, what, what stood out to you? So, like, you've, you've got a ton of things. You said 28. 28 different topics? There are 28 different uh, technologies that we feature in there. And they run the range from technologies that are obviously already here. Right. And in some cases where we well surpass them, like sliding doors and communicators. Right. Um, to technologies that are actually very close to being brought to fruition, like yeah. the tractor beam or the phasers or, um, or synthahol. Yep or the tricorder. And then we have things that are opening up incredible possibilities like Jordy's visor. Yeah. Um, where now what they actually do with that technology is you don't need to have implants in your temples. You don't need to send signals through your optic nerves. In fact, they have technology now where they can put a cybernetic implant in your brain's visual cortex uh -huh. and send you signals from the outside environment wow. to that wireless implant. It's estimated that this technology could restore sight to the blind in up to 80 to 85% of blind people wow. if they get it implemented in a widespread fashion. But there's a dark side to that that I think is worth talking about, which is... Sure. If you are putting cybernetic implants in people's brains, what do you do about hackers? What right. do you do about bad actors? Like, you know, we saw this in the uh, in the movie Generations, yep. where they hack Geordi's visor and they see what's there and they read the shields. But what would you do if you had someone with implants and they're out for a walk and you make them not see a cliff where there is one. Can right. you just murder them by feeding them false visual information? What do you do about that? You know, you would say, well, no one would do that. Well, I didn't think anyone would invent a computer virus either, but here we are in 2017 and you need an antivirus software everywhere you go. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is, that's, first of all, that one blew my mind just now. I was expecting, I, I was expecting communicator and stuff like that, but that's, that is shocking. Um, yeah. In fact, that technology, the precursor to it was actually yeah. first developed in the late nineties by NASA, where they developed something they called, pay attention to the acronym here, the joint optical reflective display. The J O R D and they oh, capitalized the Y. So they made it oh and they called it Gordy. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and so now you have a team in Australia that's developed what they call the hat pack. Okay. Where you wear a giant hat with a camera on it and it yeah. feeds the information into your brain. Um, but for the first time just last year, they've been using cybernetic implants on people with locked in syndrome. Where oh. even if you can't move your eyes or a finger, right. you can use your thoughts to select letters Wow. In your mind and you interface with a computer and it has 95% accuracy where people can start to communicate who've been mute for years. Wow. It's pretty incredible. And then you start looking at things like, well, where's my replicators? It's right, like, well, right. we have 3D printers. We do. You, and um, they even kind they, of got there with the, with the uniform the other day on, on Discovery even. Just a little tie-in. We don't get food replicators necessarily, but eh, they can do a uniform. Yeah. I, interesting. I, I also love that they have, um, not on Discovery, but that in real life, you know, 
I was worried in Discovery, like, hey, how come you guys have holograms? They don't right. have holograms right. in the original series, and they make a big to-do about the new holodeck in Next Generation. Yep. Yep. Um, but now, if you look at the technology we have, you know, we have virtual reality, which can yeah. give you an immersive experience. You can have surround sound headphones. There is a technology that they've developed. I, I got to experience, not firsthand, but I got to see a demo of this. Yeah. Apparently, if you have, they have a demo where they've made, they've incorporated the goggles and surround sound and infrasound technology. This is pressure wave technology Ooh. that they send through the air, sure. where they have a little demo that you can see dripping water and water drops fall and you can move your hand in three oh dimensions. My. And if you put your hand under the drop, and this is just a computer drop, sure. the infrasound will make the splash oh. sensation in your hand and it actually feels wet That's when crazy. it hits you. And so I look at this and I say, you know, this is the beginning of the holodeck. Right. Like it's not exactly like Star Trek envisioned it and that's okay. Star oh yeah. Hard enough to leave things vague, right? Right. So, so you you have this thing where I can have this type of experience. If you start pumping in aromas to your olfactory yes. glands, you'll be able to smell things. Maybe we can even give you the sensation of hunger and satiety. We right. can make you feel that fear. Uh, we can give you like electrical stimulations that you can actually start to like feel like, oh, it feels like there's some static electricity. And then you have the simulated lightning strike right. in front of you. Like you, I, I think wow. a lot of these technologies are really close. There are a few, and I bring these up in my book. Sure where we would need the laws of physics to be a little different sure. to bring these technologies into the realm of the possible. But where we have that, I try and be very good about talking about just what are those extra bits we would need? Okay. What are those extra little pieces? Like to have warp drive, okay. when Lawrence Krauss wrote Physics of Star Trek, we didn't really know that that was gonna be possible. But in the 90s, a theoretical physicist named Miguel Alcubierre found a solution uh -huh. in Einstein's general relativity where if you build, it's literally like a warp bubble, Okay, you can move through space and the space in front of you will be compressed or contracted. So if you have okay. a star 40 light years away, maybe you can move through space and contract it so that it only looks like it's one light year away. How do you compensate for that? Well, behind you, you need to expand that space. Oh, sure. Uh, but if you have the existence of positive mass and energy and also negative mass or energy in your universe, you can make this a physical reality. Well, we have the one kind, we have the sure. positive, we don't know yet that we have the negative. So that's the extra thing you would need. But if you could do that, you could compress the space in front of you, travel through it, and then not only do you arrive at your destination faster than a light beam would arrive through the uncontracted space, sure. but you don't have that aging problem of special relativity, where if you were going to go 40 light years in one direction and 40 light years back, no matter how fast you went, right. everyone back home would age 80 years. Right. But if you can manipulate space like this, they don't have the same aging problem. Sure. If you contract 40 light years down to one and then 40 light years down to one the other way, they've only aged two years. Yeah. And oh, wow. 
And that's really exciting. So for technologies like that, or the transporter, or artificial gravity, or subspace communication, right. those are the big four that right. need something new in physics because, you know, we don't have such a thing as subspace. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, a little bit like that. Well, yeah. The transporter, which if I'm, if I'm right, the way that it would have to work is you actually disintegrate and then you reappear on the other side. I mean, that's, that's a whole different thing. Is that, is that what I'm thinking of? I know that's the debate. I mean, that's, that's an ethical question that I yeah. do bring up in the book because okay. think about this. What's the difference when you're at your computer yeah. between control X, control V, right? Cut right. and paste. Cut and, paste. Mm -hmm. and control C, delete the original yep. and control V, right? There's yep. a big difference between cut and paste and copy, delete, and paste. Right. Um, one of those, you're still you. All you did when you cut and paste, you didn't change the original, you just changed its address. Right. You just moved it. Well, what about copy, delete, and recreate? You clearly are killing the original right. and just making a cloned copy. And it might have all your thoughts and all your memories, yeah. and it might think it's you, but it's not you, yeah. you cease to exist. Yeah. So that's, that's a big ethical question. Sure. Um, they have brought this up throughout uh, history in Star Trek. When you cloned Will Riker and made right. Thomas Riker, and then you discover, you know, actually, I'm pretty sure Will is the clone. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Thomas is the original. Yep. And he was just marooned down there, and that's terrible. Yeah, right, and right. They brought this up in passing in Enterprise as well, where they're talking, the crew is talking about it, and they're like, yeah, Captain Archer says he wouldn't put his dog through that thing. Yep. I think it is eminently possible, especially with quantum computers. Look, okay. human beings are complicated things. We have maybe 10 to the 28 particles in us, yep. which means if you can have a quantum computer that can hold 10 to the 28 bits of information, you can encode the quantum state of an entire human being. Would that also include thoughts and feelings and things like that? Yeah, you are the full sum total of your entire quantum state. Oh, wow, okay. Um, you know, if you want to be active, I guess you need electrical signals sure. flowing through your brain. After all, the only difference between a living you and a dead you is whether that electricity is on or off, right? You sure. turn your brain off, and you cease to exist, even though you're all the same things. By the same token, I can say, look at you now versus you seven years ago. Guess right. You seven years ago, uh, you have zero yeah. of the same atoms in your body now as you did right. seven years ago. Are you entirely a different person? I don't think so. So clearly, there's something that makes you, you, that's more than atoms. Atoms right. are not unique things, right? No. Any proton in the universe is identical to this proton in my finger. Right. Um, so that's not the big deal. But that information that encodes who you are, that electrical pattern that makes your brain work, that's something that, that has the unis of you somehow yeah. encoded in there. Um, so I love thinking about this, but I, I worry that people are going to say like, hey, if we could do that, if we could encode that quantum state, if we could entangle that quantum state here with the quantum state elsewhere, transfer all that information about me elsewhere, well, there's still the problem that if you take me apart atom by atom, you kill right. me. Yeah. And if you reconstruct that, that you'll make a living person over right. there and it'll think it's me and it'll act like yeah. me and it'll sound like me, but it won't be me. It'll just be a copy. Right. And that's, that's problematic. So I'd say it might be physically possible to invent a transporter, but until we figure this Eunice problem out, yeah. 
maybe we should restrict it to inanimate objects. Maybe right. we should just revolutionize shipping with yeah, this. Yeah. You know, much better than an Amazon delivery drone. Uh, for, yeah, we don't, yeah, no airspace problems with that. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's, I love, I, so I, I'm, I have to, yeah, read this book now. This is, you're this definitely going to enjoy right it. You're freaking me out and I love it. This is, <laughs> uh, any, anything else? I mean, was there anything that was just, uh, you just had a hard time actually digging into it? Like, like you said, putting those, like, uh, figuring out the, that little bit of physics that we need to change. Was there anything that was, that seemed insurmountable and, and you just you either couldn't or you, or you, it took you forever to, to crack it? I mean, one of the one of the big ones that really surprised me was uh, artificial gravity, right? In that, that one in, is the one for me, honestly. They, they talk about gravity plating, right? Yeah. They talk about this, and I'm like, no, no, that that's not going to be right. That's not how it can work, right? Um, but then I realized, you know, why can you have artificial electric fields? Okay. And why can't you have artificial gravitational fields? I mean, you can accelerate things or you can have a ship rotate and make gravity mm -hmm. like that. Right. But that's not going to give you your inertial dampeners of right. like, oh, like you can work out the math and say, okay, they, we can figure out how fast full impulse is. Right. And how long does it take me to accelerate from rest to full impulse? And you can say, well... If you work out the math and it takes me an hour to do it, yeah. then that means I go at over 4,000 Gs to yeah. do it. And once you get above about 12 Gs, that's yeah. too much for your body to pump blood. Yep. So this is over 100 times as strong as that. This will pretty surely kill you accelerating yep. like that. So you need some type of gravitational shield uh -huh. from your acceleration and then you also need some type of artificial gravity to keep you down on the ship because without it, and we've seen astronauts suffer right. this, you get bone loss, you get muscle loss, your heart atrophies, you go blind, you yep. lose your ability to balance, pretty bad effects. Yep. But if you can keep gravity there, you don't have any of these. Well, you can have uniform electric fields because you have positive charges and negative charges. You can have, pardon me, you can have an electrical conductor. Yep. If you surround your ship in an electrical conductor, then no matter how strong the electric fields outside are, the electric fields inside are zero because you can have oh. the charges plus and minus arrange themselves in a particular fashion. With gravity, we yeah. only have one type of mass. It's that's that's the gravitational charges. Sure. It's a mass and it's always positive. Okay. But here's the interesting thing. We've tested this out for matter. We know matter always falls down in a gravitational field. We have not yet tested this for antimatter. Okay. What there is an experiment at CERN called the Alpha experiment. Uh -huh. And what they're attempting to do is they're they've created neutral anti-hydrogen. Okay. So you take an anti-proton, you put an anti-electron in orbit around it, you've got an anti-atom. They've confined anti-atoms for as long as about 10 to 20 minutes at one go, uh -huh. which is a big advance. If you can measure which way does antimatter fall in a gravitational field, everyone expects it's going to fall down. And sure. if it does that, you know, it's back to the drawing board <laughs> for artificial gravity. But if it falls up, 
then all of a sudden this is possible. If it falls up in a gravitational field, then you have your negative gravitational mass. You can make this gravitational conductor. Artificial gravity becomes a real possibility. And that wow. is just mind-blowing to me. It's that, seriously mind-blowing. Wow. So that's a, that's a really good example of with our current laws of physics as we know them, this isn't possible. Right. But if things are different in this one particular way, this technology could be brought to life. Man. Well, yeah. I, so, yeah, like I said, I, I'm, I have to get this book. Uh, any, any last thoughts before I, I let you go? This has been fascinating. I, I got to say, I'm honestly like my mind is, is reeling right now because I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, excited about this. You any, know, any I'd, last say, thoughts on I'd say the one last thought I'd yeah. like to leave you with, and I, I do have an intro and a conclusion to this as do well it, in the book, is um, I think the important thing to remember is that when Star Trek comes out about this, it's not just about, oh, we can have these incredible technologies, right. blah, blah, blah. It's really about using the full suite of everything that not even just humanity, but that every species in the Federation has discovered. Right. It's about sharing that knowledge. It's about making it accessible to everybody. Yeah. And it's using the fruits of that science and that technology to create a better life for everyone right. in existence. And that's, that's the whole spirit of Star Trek to me. So when I think about, you know, what sort of world we're going to have and what sort of world we're going to build, I think about how important it is for all of us to, to make this the world we want to live in. So the, the last thing that I end my book with is part of what makes us human is the journey to continuously strive for the next frontier, to cross the next boundary, to explore the newest unknowns, to unlock the next set of possibilities. Our journey does not end with us, but continues from generation to generation with each one enjoying a better quality of life than the last. We have not reached our limits yet. Our mission to boldly go where no one has gone before continues. It's up to us to make it so. And I think that positive yeah. message, that's really, you know, that's really keeping with the spirit of Star Trek, that this is not just about what is possible, right. but how can we use this to improve the lives of everyone on Earth? I love it. And, and I, I would agree with you. I think that ultimately is the message beyond all the, the slickness of the gadgets, the how it looks and how it feels and the uniforms and all that, that stuff that we keep getting hung up on, me included ultimately it's what is the message what are they trying to say and and star trek has always since 66 has always been how are we making the the world or the universe in their case how are we they, we making it a better place that's right and i think when you look at discovery these might be flawed characters these might be characters who are making mistakes and these might be characters who are getting it wrong at various twists and turns but mm -hmm. i'm optimistic still that overall at the end of the day yes. they're going to learn these lessons and we're going to get to see that spirit and that optimism and that altruism in action i love it and i think that's that's exactly where we finish off um Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I loved picking your brain. We could, I think, do it for a long time. Um, this has been this has been fantastic. Thanks very much. 
All right. Well, thanks, everyone. And uh, if you pick up a copy of Technology, uh, wherever books are sold, I, I hope you love it. And if I run into you anywhere, I'll be more than happy to sign it. Yeah. Oh, uh, let me ask, uh, any, where can people find you online? Oh, find me online. My blog is Starts With a Bang. It's on Forbes. We publish about six new articles every week. And uh, I'm Starts With a Bang on Twitter. If you want to give me a follow or a shout out, say, say where you saw me and I'll make sure to say hi back and uh, make sure to rub it in Chris's face that he wasn't here go. tonight with me and Tyler. I'm telling you. Yeah, please do. Everybody should tweet at Chris Farrell that they were, uh, that they, he missed out on this uh, great discussion. All right. All right. Thank you. And have a great, have a great day, everyone. Live long and prosper.